This evening we'll speak of the most intense and central of the church's experience within the framework of what we have called already the liturgy of time, the sanctification of time, the experience of the saving grace that is made available for the members of the church within the church year. And that is the celebration of Pascha and everything that leads up to that celebration. And if we look at the church year as we observe it uh, now, we'll see that a very large portion of each year is set aside for this most central of observances. Altogether, it's nearly a third of the entire year all the period that is set aside for preparing for Pascha and then followed by that season of the church year, the 50 days from Pascha until Pentecost when we celebrate. Now, this is such a basic and central experience of, of the Orthodox faith that I would go so far as to say that uh, even though uh, you specifically here have been received into the church before going through, passing through your first Lent and Pascha, there is a very real sense where one's membership in the church has not been fully completed until one has reached this greatest of the church's feast. So even though on the one hand you are living now in within uh, the communion of the church's life, there remains for you something very great, something very crucial to the church's tradition. And, and that is this, this annual observance of the Paschal celebration. So it's especially important that during these weeks now, before we begin the Lenten season, you become familiar with some of its features. First of all, it's necessary to realize that the celebration of Pascha, and that's a word again that you should be familiar with, it means Passover, it's derived directly from the Hebrew, is not considered in the church as simply one of many great feasts. Now we have, as you know, many feast days in the church. You've celebrated some of them already. The birth of the Lord, the uh, the Theophany, when you were received into the church, we just cel finished celebrating the feast of the meeting of Christ in the temple with Simeon. Yet, the Paschal feast, the Paschal celebration, is always considered to be the source from which every other celebration in the church is derived. That's why it's called the Feast of Feasts. You may have heard, although we haven't spoken of this yet in this class, that you may have heard that in the church calendar, the 12 of the greatest feasts are set aside. They're called the 12 great feasts. Yet, if I were to list for you the 12 great feasts, you would see that Pascha is not listed with the 12 great feasts. That is because it's considered above them. It's considered uh, unlistable in that sense, unclassifiable because it is in the celebration, the experience of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord that everything we do in the church proceeds. 
whether it is the weekly celebration of the Lord's Day, whether it is the celebration of other feast days, it is this taste in time of the kingdom of God of the glory of the resurrection of the Lord, of the new creation that begins in the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits, and continues now until the end of the world, hidden from the eyes of the world in the church, and that will be made manifest, that will appear in its full glory at the end of the world with the return of the Lord in glory. It is in this Paschal experience, as I will call it, that everything else not only liturgically but even spiritually in the church proceeds. That's why one of the greatest of the more recent of, of Orthodox saints, Saint Seraphim of Sarov, one of the great ascetics, uh, one of those who attained union with God while still in this world before his death, became a himself in his person, the, the light and glory and, and joy and perfect peace and love of the kingdom of God was revealed in him. And one of his characteristics that he did, something that was uh, unique to him, is every day of the year when people would come to, to speak to him, uh, he would always greet them with the words, Christ is risen, my joy. He called everybody my joy. He had attained union with God, and union with God is the eternal experience of the of the resurrection of Christ, the constant presence of the joy of the risen Lord. So I want to read to you, by way of introduction, a few comments uh, of Bishop Callistos Ware. It's uh, Bishop Callistos Ware, who's the Bishop of, of Oxford in England, uh, together with, with uh, a nun who died a short time ago, Mother Maria, who lived in France, that many uh, of uh, the church hymns, the liturgical hymns that we sing, some of the first translations into English uh, were done by these two. And this book, we'll mention it later, uh, contains all of the variable, the special hymnography that's done during the season before Pascha, uh, the, the Lenten season. And you can see there's quite a lot of it. And in his introduction, Bishop Callistos Ware writes this, We waited, and at last our expectations were fulfilled, writes the Serbian bishop Nicholas of Akrid, describing the paschal service at Jerusalem. When the patriarch sang, Christ is risen, a heavy burden fell from our souls we felt as if we also had been raised from the dead. All at once, from all around, the same cry resounded like the noise of many waters. Christ is risen, sang the Greeks, the Russians, the Arabs, the Serbs, the Copts, the Armenians, the Ethiopians, one after another, each in his own tongue, in his own melody. Coming out from the service at dawn, we began to regard everything in the light of the glory of Christ's resurrection. And all appeared different from what, it had, it, from what it had yesterday. Everything seemed better, more expressive, more glorious. Only in the light of the resurrection does life receive meaning. This sense of resurrection joy, so vividly described by Bishop Nikolai, forms the foundation of all the worship of the Orthodox Church. 
It is the one and only basis for our Christian life and hope. Yet in order for us to experience the full power of this Paschal rejoicing, each of us needs to pass through a time of preparation. We waited, said Bishop Nikolai, and at last our expectations were fulfilled. Without this waiting, without this expectant preparation, the deeper meaning of the Paschal celebration will be lost. Father Alexander Schmemann writes in his book, Great Lent, which I would recommend very highly to you, uh, especially those who are new in the church, as, as part of your experience of your first Lent within the communion of the church, to read this book. It's readily available. <clears throat> he says, is it necessary to explain that Pascha is much more than one of the feasts, more than a yearly commemoration of a past event? Anyone who has taken part in that night which is brighter than the day, who has tasted of that unique joy, knows it. But what is that joy about? Why can we sing as we do during the Paschal Liturgy, today all things are filled with light, heaven and earth and the regions under the earth? In what sense do we celebrate as we claim to do the death of death, the annihilation of Hades, the beginning of a new and everlasting life? To all these questions, the answer is the new life which almost 2,000 years ago shone forth from the grave has been given to us, to all those who believe in Christ. And it was given to us on the day of our baptism, in which, as St. Paul says, we were buried with Christ unto death so that as Christ was raised from the dead, we also may walk in newness of life. Thus, on Pascha, we celebrate Christ's resurrection as something that happened and still happens to us. For each one of us received the gift of that new life and the power to accept it and to live by it. It is a gift which radically alters our attitude toward everything in this world, including death. It makes it possible for us joyfully to affirm death is no more. Oh, death is still there to be sure, and we still face it, and someday it will come and take us. But it is our whole faith that by his own death, Christ changed the very nature of death, made it a passage, a Passover, a Pascha, into the kingdom of God, transforming the tragedy of tragedies into the ultimate victory, Trampling down death by death, he made us partakers of his resurrection. This is why at the end of Paschal Matins we sing, Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. Such is the faith of the saints. Such is the faith of the church, affirmed and made evident by her countless saints. Is it not our daily experience, however, that this faith is very seldom ours. That all the time we lose and betray the new life which we received as a gift. And that in fact we live as if Christ did not rise from the dead. As if that unique event had no meaning whatsoever for us. All this because of our weakness. Because of the impossibility for us to live constantly by faith, hope and love on that level to which Christ raised us when he said, seek first of all the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We simply forget all this. 
So busy are we, so immersed in our daily preoccupations, and because we forget, we fall. And through this forgetfulness, failure, and sin, our life becomes old again, petty, dark, and ultimately meaningless, a meaningless journey toward a meaningless end. We manage to forget even death, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of our enjoying life, it comes to us, horrible, inescapable, senseless. We may from time to time acknowledge and confess our various sins, yet we cease to refer our life to that new life which Christ revealed and gave to us. Indeed, we live as if he never came. This is the only real sin, the sin of all sins the bottomless sadness and tragedy of our nominal Christianity. If we realize this, then we may understand what Pascha is and why it needs and presupposes Lent. For we may then understand that the liturgical traditions of the Church, all its cycles and services exist, first of all, in order to help us recover the vision and the taste of that new life which we so easily lose and betray so that we may repent and return to it. So that is the purpose of this season of all seasons. This time which can be understood in, in two pieces, and then we'll have to look at each one of it, the pieces in its respective part. The season that leads up to Pascha, and we're going to speak of it as a journey, in the same way that we spoke of the Divine Liturgy uh, as the journey. And that season, by the way, is often referred to in the liturgical texts, in the hymns, and by the Fathers of the Church as a tithe of the year, because the Lenten period, the season of fasting, is roughly 10% of the year. And then the season of celebration, the 50 days of, from Pascha to Pentecost, when we are invited to share, while still in this world, a taste of the joy of the world to come, for which the preparation makes us ready. That's the purpose of it. So that we can return where we belong. So that while we still fighting through this life with all its struggle and temptation, as Father, Father Alexander explains so well, we can cast aside in a most intense way all the weight of the things of this world, all the power that evil has over us, that we can be cleansed from its effects, and that we can see life as it really is. We can see Christ as he really is. We can share directly, not as spectators, as we always say, because the liturgy is not for spectators. The liturgy is for participants. We can enter into the life-giving death and burial and resurrection of Christ and see him as he is for whom he is. And we can see ourselves as we are. And we can, on the level of the year, each year, because that's why it's given to us in the framework of time. We live in time until we leave this world. And each year, we're invited by the church to get a little more close to either the end of the world or to the hour of our death when we will face Christ and it will be revealed how much of our life has been hungering and thirsting for the kingdom of God. 
So you could say that the Lenten season is the annual renewal of the church, revival of the church. Sometimes we could speak of it even as, as our annual shock treatment that we need to restore us from the weight of, of this world that hangs on us so closely. So for the next 10 weeks in the church's uh, liturgical observance, we will be first getting ready to enter into Lent. Then we'll have the Lenten observance itself, the period of the 40 days. And then we'll have the week for which those 40 days prepare us, that week that is called the Holy Week. So I want to look at each one of, of those sections of this time of preparation this evening so that as we've already entered into the period before Lent, uh, you can be a little bit more ready when it comes and you can have some degree of familiarity even though you have not experienced a number of the things that we're going to speak of this evening. You can have some familiarity if you, if you uh, will remember some of the things we talk about tonight with all of the unique graces that are offered us by the tradition of the church during the Lenten observance. Because the way we observe Lent, uh, and maybe you've had a little taste of this in the past, for example, as you prepared for your chrismation during the fasting season uh, before Christmas and then on the day before Theophany, <coughs> What happens during Lent is we are invited to live a completely different lifestyle than, well, maybe that's putting it a little bit too radically, a lifestyle at least that is much more radically focused on the one thing needful for our lives, that is seeking the kingdom of God, hungering and thirsting for the presence of God. Uh, it would be wrong for me to say that this season is so completely different from the rest of the year because after all it is this season which is meant to nourish the rest of the year. What is given to us during the Lenten season is, is one of the primary sources of strength and grace for our continuing in this world to grow closer and closer to union with God, to be purified of all the effects of evil, to grow in knowledge of God. And so hopefully, because everything that the church gives us, every day that God gives us, is in a sense a facing of judgment, we will, and, and this is something that the saints were very much aware of, we will at the end of this day be either closer to or further from God and his kingdom than we were at the close of yesterday. It's a cardinal law of the spiritual life that we do not remain static. We are either moving closer to God or away from him. Every time we gather for the liturgy on the Lord's Day, we are either closer to him, and hopefully that's what we are, or further away than we were previously. And likewise, in this most intense experience in time. The church has always lived just as the people of Israel did in the Old Testament. They lived from Passover to Passover. The Passover was the sign of God's working in them. Their deliverance from slavery in Egypt to freedom in Israel. 
But we are going to sing on Easter night of a much greater liberation, a much, much greater release from slavery. We're going to sing, this is the day of resurrection. Let us be radiant, O people. It is the Pascha, the Pascha of the Lord. For from death to life and from earth to heaven, Christ our God has led us. So we are not talking about getting out of Egypt. We're talking about getting out of death and sin in this world and into the kingdom of God. And we are told that Every opportunity that is given us every day brings us either closer to or further from that. So we have this invitation to radically alter the worldliness in our lifestyle during the Lenten season. We're going to speak specifically of, how, of the ways that the church recommends for us to do that. Before we do that, before we enter into the 40 days of Lent, the church, which uh, the church tradition, after all, is one of the best sources of sound psychology, the best source of sound psychology that, that we can find. The church tradition, as, as our mother, knows what we are like, knows that we need to be prepared to enter into such, uh, such a, a radical change that is offered us during Lent. And so we have five Sundays before Lent actually starts to prepare us for the Lenten observance. And I'll, I'll mention each one of them just in summary form. I can't say uh, too much about each of them. They're called by the title of the Gospel reading that is read uh, on, at the Divine Liturgy on each of the five Sundays before Lent. And as you know, you were at the Divine Liturgy on Sunday. The Gospel of Zacchaeus was read this past Sunday. The Gospel of, of the little man who, because even though he, was, uh, he lived very sinful life as, as a dishonest tax collector, nevertheless wanted to see Jesus and, climb, and he was too little to do it because of the crowd. So he climbed up into the tree so, so he could see him. And that gospel is the beginning of our preparation for this Lenten journey, that we have to do what Zacchaeus did. We have to have the desire. Zacchaeus had desire. If we want to see the Lord, the Lord will reveal himself to us. But we have to climb a tree to do it. And it is the church in her tradition gives us the tree of the Lenten observance. That doesn't mean by simply going through uh, by letter all the prescriptions that the church gives us during Lent, attending all the services, that it's some sort of guarantee that something's going to happen to us. Rather, it's from our heart that it will happen, from our heart, from our desire. So. The Zacchaeus Sunday is the gateway to the preparation for Lent. Then on this coming Sunday, we'll read the gospel about the tax collector, the publican, and the Pharisee. And I'm not going to summarize these gospels because hopefully uh, you, you'll recognize them. And of course, much will be said and sung about them in the church as we, as we observe these, these Sundays to prepare us for Lent. This coming Saturday night, the Saturday night before the Sunday of the Publican and the Pharisee, we begin to use the special hymnography that will accompany us all through the pre-Lenten and Lenten season. And 
It comes from the book of the church that is called the Lenten Triodion. Now, Triodion is a Greek word, and, and just, so you're, uh, just so you're familiar with it, uh, means, it means three odes or three canticles, and the reason why they call the, the Lenten service book this is that on the weekdays of Lent, uh, at the matin service, the morning service, the, the center of it, as far as the singing goes, is the singing of three canticles of, of songs from the Old Testament combined with hymnography. And because that's such a feature of the Lenten worship, the Lenten service book took that name from it, the Lenten Triodion, it's called. So when you come into Vespers on this Saturday evening, and we'll begin, the service, of course, will be held in the usual way. And when we come to Lord I Call at Vespers and we begin to sing the hymns of the day, and as you know, on Saturday night, we first sing hymns in honor of the resurrection of the Lord. And then we'll finish them. And then we will begin to add special hymns that are taken from the Lenten Triodion that refer us to the special focus of this Sunday. For example, this is the first one. Brethren, let us not pray as the Pharisee, for he who exalts himself shall be humbled. Let us humble ourselves before God, that our fasting may cry aloud like the publican, God be merciful to us sinners. And of course, that's the first verse of, of one of, of many. So the lesson of the second of the pre-Lenten Sundays, the Sunday of the publican and the Pharisee, focusing on the humility of the tax collector who did not boast of his own goodness like the Pharisee, is that without humility, we will never be close enough to God to know who he is. So the desire of Zacchaeus, the humility of the tax collector. Then on the third of the pre-Lenten Sundays, called the Sunday of the prodigal son, because on that day we read the parable of, of the prodigal son, the son who, who leaves his father's house and finally destitute of everything and, and only feeding the pigs, having lost the inheritance that the father gave him, he returns to the father's house and the father receives him in love and forgiveness. And of course, that story of Jesus is an image of the entire spiritual life. Our whole life is a return from the exile of this world and our own sinfulness to forgiveness and union with God. And beginning on that Sunday, a feature, uh, now I don't, I don't expect you to remember all these details that I mentioned to you tonight, but I'm going to mention a number of things that are particular to, to these, uh, these Sundays before and, and then during Lent itself, so that when they come, maybe something uh, in your memory will remind you that, yeah, we did say a little bit about that, and it won't be, it, it won't be such a complete uh, surprise. On the Sunday of the Prodigal Son, we begin the singing of the 136th Psalm for the services of that day. And you'll hear the choir sing it at communion time, and the chanters will sing it at the morning service before the liturgy at matins. It's the psalm that begins with the words, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs and our plunderers for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
How could we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand wither up. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not place Jerusalem above my highest joy. That song was sung by the Jews when they had been taken away captive from Israel, from Jerusalem, and the temple had been destroyed, and they were in Babylon about 600 years before the birth of Christ. And there they sang that lamentation, that song of Israel, that they had lost, that, that they had lost their home. And we make it our song, too, because our life in this world is experienced as an exile. And that's what we're invited to do during Lent, to realize uh, more with, with more uh, focus than we do usually because of our distractions, that our life in this world is exile and that we need to experience this, this life laying aside the things of this world as a return from exile to the kingdom of God. So that's the focus of the third of the pre-Lenten Sundays, the Sunday of the prodigal son. Then on the fourth of the pre-Lenten Sundays, which is called uh, popularly Meat Fair Sunday or Judgment Sunday. And that's because that Sunday is the last day, according to the rule of the church, for eating meat until Pascha. Uh, the gospel at that Sunday is the gospel of the last judgment when the Lord gathers all those who have ever lived before him. He, he speaks of this in the, in the 24th chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel, 25th chapter. And the people of the world are divided into those who have loved and those who have not loved. Those to whom God says, I was hungry and you fed me, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you, you visited me, I was in prison and you took care of me. And, and they will say to him, Lord, when did we see you and, and do this for you? And, and he says, as long as you did it for one of the least of my brothers, you did it for me. And then likewise to those who will be lost, those who did not love. So we see that the criterion of judgment, whether or not we will be found to be people of the kingdom of God or not, will be by our love. So that's, that's the focus of the fourth uh, Pre Sundays preparatory to Lent. Then the final week before Lent begins, the, the, fifth, the fifth week before Lent actually begins, is most often called in the church Cheese Fair Week. And that's because there is the beginning of a partial fast that week before Lent begins. It's meant to ease us into the Lenten observance. And so during that week, we are permitted to eat fish and dairy products every day, yet we, yet we already have begun our abstinence from meat. And during that week, even at the weekday services, the services gradually begin to acquire more and more of a Lenten flavor that I'll, that I'll uh, describe in, in just a minute. The final Sunday of, of the preparation for Lent, the fifth, is called Forgiveness Sunday or Cheese Fair Sunday because it's the last day for eating the dairy products before, before Lent begins, according to the rule. And on that day, we hear the gospel at the liturgy that the criterion 
of what, what will make God's forgiveness work in our lives is whether or not we forgive others. If you forgive men their trespasses, the Lord will say in the gospel, my heavenly Father will forgive you. And if you do not forgive, then my heavenly Father cannot forgive you because what makes God's forgiveness operative in our life is our willingness to forgive others. So at the very entrance to Lent, the last day, before we actually begin the Lenten season, we are told that we, are, we cannot simply uh, go off by ourselves and concentrate on uh, our own spiritual efforts without the framework of asking the forgiveness of others. And that's why on the Sunday evening of Forgiveness Sunday, the service that begins Lent, we have the first of the special observances of the church that, that you need to be aware of and that you will experience for the first time. At Vespers on that Sunday evening, it's called Forgiveness Sunday Vespers, and, and it's the service that actually ushers in the 40 days of the Lenten season. At that service, uh, a number of outward things happen. Uh, as, as the service progresses, uh, the, the covers, the cloths in the church are changed from bright colored and the vestments of the priest to the dark color, the somber color that we use during Lent. The lights in the church are dimmed. We begin to sing the responses. Uh, the Lord have mercy, for example, and the other responses of the service to a special melody called the Lenten melody. It's a penitential melody. It's, it's uh, actually mournful sounding. It's meant to be. And then at the end of that service, everyone in the church asks forgiveness of everyone else. Everybody in the church we make, uh, well, we try to make a big circle, but it's impossible to do it. There are so many of us. But, but everyone goes before everyone else and, and bows before them and asks forgiveness and exchanges the kiss of peace. And we do that uh, with those with whom we're close to, with those whom we're not so close to, with those whom we know well, with those whom we don't know at all. And the reason why that's there is that it's an experience, first of all, of the necessity when we enter into the fast, to do so with forgiveness and also to experience that forgiveness comes to us through the channel of the other person. It does not come to us in private, isolated by ourselves. We find forgiveness within, within the brothers and sisters of the body of Christ in the church. So with that special service on Forgiveness Sunday night, a Lent begins. Now, the 40 days of Lent consist of the period beginning of with the Monday following Forgiveness Sunday, the first day of Lent that we call in the church Clean Monday or Pure Monday, and it continues until the Friday before Palm Sunday. Those 40 days specifically are the time of Lent. And by the way, the word uh, Lent itself, it's, it's, not, uh, its origin actually is in uh, Anglo-Saxon lang languages. And it simply means spring. It's the spiritual spring, the season of the spring. The, uh, the, the 40 days of the fast, which of course, in which we imitate the fast of our Lord Jesus Christ in the desert following his baptism. Now, during these 40 days, we are called by using tried and true, tested spiritual disciplines and practices that are 
our inheritance from the tradition of the church to lay aside all earthly cares and with intensity seek God, seek the purification of our lives, seek to be freed from, from the burden of sin and the effects of sin in our life, seek to increase uh, our love for God and love for, for our brothers and sisters. And I'll summarize what the church gives us during these days. First of all, we are called to intensify our prayer, both liturgically, the common prayer of the church, and our personal prayer. The services in, in the church during the Lenten season become, one of the things you'll notice right away is, is particularly on the weekdays, they become much longer. Much more time is devoted to liturgical worship. It can be said, in effect, that every Orthodox church during the Lenten season tries to do, at least during that time, some of what a monastic community tries to do every day the whole year. Uh, the parish church becomes uh, a monastery of sorts during, during the Lenten season. We're called to, to do, even as people who live in the world, to put a great deal of effort into a way of life that one of the reasons why uh, some people will ask, what is, what is the need for this deliberate lengthening of the services? And, and you'll see, uh, those, those who, who know it, know what I'm talking about, and you'll see, if you have not seen, that it is very deliberate. Uh, this spending of, of many hours in, in common liturgical worship, the purpose of that is it introduces us to another world. It introduces us to the world of the presence of God in which this world is really left uh, behind. Now, of course, we are called to do that all the time when we worship. Yet, nevertheless, when we intensify our worship, both in quantity and in quality, our experience of the other world, the spiritual world, the world that is the normal world, we're called on to experience the abnormality of our life in this world. And the, the first means that the church gives us to do this is through the Lenten worship. Now it has a number of features. First of all, during the first week of Lent, uh, we try in our parish here, as do many Orthodox churches, to do the services each day in their fullness. That means uh, a number of hours in the morning, a number of hours in the evening, the, the services are characterized by long series of the psalms being chanted. Uh, they are, we, we read passages from the church fathers inviting us to repentance. And you will see that physically, uh, the use of, of prostrations as the involvement of the body in, in this, this breaking down of, of the pride and self-centeredness that's rooted in our souls. The prostration is used for a tool for that, and you'll see that there are many, many prostrations in, in the church's Lent and weekday services. In fact, one Another uh, of the unique special services, I mentioned forgiveness vespers already, is something that we do on the first four evenings of Lent, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of the first week of Lent. It's called the Great Canon. Canon means, in its most simple way to define it, very long hymn. The Great Canon of St. Andrew. 
of Crete. St. Andrew of Crete was a bishop who lived in the 7th century on the island of Crete. And he wrote in his old age uh, this penitential hymn. It was, it's a, a prayer in song asking for the forgiveness of the sins of his whole life. And he intended it when he wrote it to be for his personal prayers. But it entered into the memory of the church. It, was, it has been understood. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, you can even find, uh, especially in the past, references made to it by people who were even not Orthodox, uh, who, who found in this, in this penitential lamentation such, such a full and, and beautiful, heartfelt, fervent expression of repentance that the church made it a part of her liturgical tradition. And and we do that on the first four days of Lent in the evening. We come and, and this, this canon is sung and you'll see we, at, there are many, many verses and at, at, after the end of each one we sing, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me and make a prostration. The first, the first year that our, our parish uh, uh, experienced this, they called it spiritual aerobics. <laughs> but you'll see that there is a great uh, a great wisdom, a great genius to the involvement of, of our bodies uh, in communion with, with our mind and our soul, our spirit, involving our whole person in the worship this way. Then the most well-known expression, the central expression of, of the church's special services during the Lenten season is called the Liturgy of the Presanctified Gifts. And this, this will be the service that uh, after you pass through your first Lent, will, will, when you think of Lent, when most, when most Orthodox Christians think of Lent and the services during Lent, what immediately comes to their mind and to their heart is the liturgy of the presanctified gifts. Now, what this is, it is an evening service that is, that is celebrated every Wednesday and Friday evening uh, during the Lenten season, during the 40 days. Wednesdays and Fridays, uh, as you know, ordinarily through the whole year, are strict fast days. During the Lenten season, they are intended by the church to be kept with, with the most strictness possible of the whole year. And we are, we are supposed to observe a total fast all day on the Wednesdays and Fridays of Lent, which concludes with receiving Holy Communion in the evening. But the service that is held on Wednesday and Friday evening is not the usual celebration of the Divine Liturgy. It is a special Lenten liturgy, and the reason why it has the name it has, the Liturgy of the Presanctified Gifts, is that on every Sunday during the Lenten season, at, at the Divine Liturgy, you're hopefully now familiar enough with the Divine Liturgy so that you see that, of course, at the Divine Liturgy, on the plate, the discos, is the lamb that is offered to become the body of Christ. On the Sundays during Lent, if you, if you will look, uh, you'll notice not, not only one lamb not for, for the Sunday liturgy, but there will be three lambs on the plate. And so at the Sunday liturgy, they're offered and consecrated the lamb for that Sunday that will be received in Holy Communion at Sunday Liturgy, one for Wednesday, 
one for Friday. That's why it's called the Liturgy of the Pre-Sanctified Gifts, at which we receive Holy Communion that has been reserved, that has been saved from the preceding Sunday. The reason why it's done this way is that from very early in the life of the church, and, and I think you'll understand uh, uh, from your own experience, the celebration of the usual divine liturgy, such as we do on Sundays and, and feast days, is always a very joyful celebration. And it has been the desire of the church, knowing our need during Lent, to have a service that focuses on repentance, at which nevertheless Holy Communion is available, because without the body and blood of Christ to nourish us as we pass through the season of fasting, we would not be able to make it. So, in order to provide us with Holy Communion during Lent, it is offered to us on Wednesday and Friday evening with this special service, which consists of a Lenten Vespers, a special Lenten Vespers with, with many unique prayers that concludes with the receiving of Communion that has been kept from the preceding Sunday. And this experience each week and, and every uh, every faithful Orthodox Christian who is, who is diligent in trying to live uh, the life of the church that has given us during, during the holy season of the fast makes it always the top priority to, to be present in church on Wednesday and Friday during the Lenten season. These services, the liturgies of the pre-sanctified gifts, should, should never be considered uh, in any way secondary. Uh, it's, it's not enough for, uh, it's really never enough anyway to limit our, our liturgical worship to that most important expression of it, which is the Sunday Eucharist. We must always have more than that. We must take as much advantage of as we can of the liturgical riches of the church as they are offered us. But particularly during the Lenten season, it's assumed that the faithful gather uh, uh, on Wednesday and Friday. And as you'll see, that, that we have... Uh, we, we are blessed here that, that uh, many, many people, uh, the majority uh, of the church, uh, comes to the, the liturgy of the pre-sanctified gifts on, on Wednesday and Friday. So that you will see as you experience your first Lent in the Orthodox Church as being the most direct expression of, first of all, the fast as the emptiness and hunger for God and, and the struggle against all the power of evil within oneself and in the world. That's why the church mobilizes during Lent with the fast to in communion with Christ, not, not relying on any strength of our own, but in communion with Christ, enter into this struggle, this war of, of the church against the powers of evil uh, that will go on until the end of the world, perhaps growing more and more intense as the end of the world grows nearer. So you will find that this, this day-long total fast, concluding with the receiving of Holy Communion at the Liturgy of the Presanctified, to be the center of your Lenten experience in the liturgical services. Then, as the weeks of Lent pass, I, I can't mention in, in this summary this evening every, every special feature of the Lenten worship, so I'm focusing on the most important things. Another unique uh, happening in the middle of the Lenten season on the third Sunday of Lent is that we have the veneration of the Holy Cross 
The cross is brought out into the middle of the church. At the end of every service during the middle week of Lent, there, there is a special veneration of the cross. And the purpose of that, in fact, I'll, I'll read a little bit uh, about the time of the cross. On Sunday, the third Sunday of Lent, we celebrate the veneration of the honorable and life-giving cross for this reason. Because, as in the 40 days of fasting, we crucify ourselves. And that is what the invitation to Lent is. is an invitation to share the cross in a personal way. And because of this effort, become weak and failing. The life-giving cross is presented to us for refreshment and assurance. See, this is the genius of the church. In the middle of the fast, which if, by the time we get to that middle week, if we're taking it seriously, you begin to feel it. And it becomes harder. And uh, the, see, the church does not uh, say, well, you need some refreshment. Go out and have a hamburger. The church presents us with where we're going. We're going to the cross to strengthen us. And this, I always like to bring this up because it's, it's an example of, of how... Uh, the church ha is, is a genius in dealing with us. Originally, this veneration of the cross on the third Sunday of Lent used to be held in the church on Good Friday, which is, of course, when we would expect it. And we do venerate the cross on Good Friday also. But this special veneration of the cross began later on because it was felt that the people needed it, that we needed to have the cross in a, in a very direct way placed before the eyes of our hearts, so to encourage us to complete this, this effort, this journey. We are like those following a long, hard path who become tired. And we see a beautiful tree with many leaves and sit in its shadow and rest for a while. And then, as if refreshed, we continue our journey. Likewise, today, in the time of fasting and difficult journey and effort, the life-giving cross is planted in our midst by the Holy Fathers to give us rest and refreshment, to encourage us for the remaining task. So you'll remember when the middle of Lent comes and we have this special veneration of the cross. Then the services of Lent continue to... Uh, through the 40 days until we reach the final week before Palm Sunday when we begin to focus on the end of our journey, which is the ultimate encounter between the Lord and death, the Lord's ultimate sacrifice for us. And if we take the Lenten effort seriously, we will experience that this confrontation is not going on somewhere long ago, somewhere out there, but we will experience it happening in the level of our own soul. This, this battle between life and death, this reducing of life to the ultimate question. If you have a good Lent, if I have a good Lent, if all of us in the church have a good Lent, what will happen in one way or other, it always happens, is that we reach with a clarity that is usually not possible for us the rest of the time when we are, when we are not, so, not so focused as we're called to be during Lent. We'll reach again the need for, for making 
the ultimate choice between Christ or emptiness, meaninglessness. It's possible for us the rest of the time to distract ourselves that, well, yes, uh, I believe, I suppose, to a certain extent, but somehow uh, if, if that weren't there, I could still go on with, with my daily life. Well, see, the point of stripping away the, the preoccupation with the daily life is to, is to force us, just as Jesus at the end of his 40-day fast in the wilderness had this confrontation with the devil. Well, we have this confrontation too, and it is between life and death. It is between Christ and the devil. It is between the life that, that has meaning and the life that is empty. It is between sin and righteousness. And we will find, and it's always in a different way every year, it's to talk to Anybody who in the church takes this seriously, they will tell you that things happen to you during this time. So during the last week of Lent, as we are headed toward Palm Sunday, we begin to focus on Christ's ultimate uh, confrontation with death. And it begins with the resurrection of his friend Lazarus from the dead. And that's why the 40 days of Lent end with a celebration, a liturgical celebration. We end the 40 days of Lent before we go into Holy Week in which we will participate in Christ's passion, death, and burial so that we might rise with him. We begin by being given a foretaste of his victory and it's through his raising Lazarus that already the destruction of death begins to be revealed. So the 40 days of Lent end with the celebration of the, rising of, of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So those are some of the special liturgical features of Lent that, that you need to be aware are coming and that you should make every effort to participate in. The, the Forgiveness Sunday Vespers, that Sunday evening when Lent begins, the special penitential canon of St. Andrew during the first week of Lent, and using the first week of Lent as, as a time to, uh, in which we're given a great, a great and generous share in, in the liturgical life of the church by many services every day that we're called to take advantage of. And then finally, week by week on Wednesday and Friday, to, to be present at the Liturgy of the Presanctified Gifts at the end of that special effort of prayer and fasting that were called on the Wednesdays and Fridays of Lent so that we can be nourished by the body and blood of Christ. So that's the first side of, of Lent, prayer. And, and with that liturgical prayer of the church, we will also intensify our personal prayers. And the, the recommendation is always given that whatever we do normally uh, throughout the, the rest of the year, we should try to add to as we are able. If, if we, if we uh, try to pray for the, all those whom we know as we should at least once a week, maybe we can try to do it a little bit more often during Lent. If we are praying through the Psalms, through the Psalter as we should, maybe we'll try to, to do a few more every day. If we are saying the Jesus prayer, as we should be, then we will try to, to extend the period of time that we say the Jesus prayer. If we are observing a time of silence in the presence of God, maybe we'll try to add to it so that we can, we can be nourished by, by a deeper experience of being silent before God, and so forth. Now, the second... Uh, a central aspect of the Lenten observance is, of course, the fasting. 
Now, uh, we've spoken of, of the fasting rule before, so I'm not going to go through all of that again this evening. Uh, you, know, uh, you know basically uh, how the fasting rhythm of the church works. And of course, before Lent, we, we distribute to everyone in the church a copy of the fasting rule during Lent, and, uh, along with some spiritual reading to uh, encourage people to undertake the fast for the right reasons in humility of heart. On the one hand, not to be proud through any kind of, of strict observance of the rule. We should try to observe the rule strictly, but if we do it with pride and thinking that those who do, who, who do less are, are, are uh, less than we, then it's all for nothing. And, and we, uh, ha, we'll, what will happen to us, and we should not actually laugh but be warned, is uh, there's a verse from the Lenten service book, the Triodion, that warns us about being self-righteous in our fasting. And see if I can find it here. Well, I can quote it by heart. Uh, this is the one of the verses that's sung in the week before Lent, before we've. Uh, we've even entered into the fast, and it's a very stern warning. It says, In vain do you rejoice in your not eating, my soul. For you abstain from food, but you do not abstain from passions and from pride. And if you continue in this, you will become like the demons who never eat at all. So that's always, there's a wonderful story from, from the life of St. Anthony when uh, the, the, as, as the demons continually tried to bother and torment St. Anthony in the desert. And finally, uh, one of the devils, uh, that, and they would speak to him even, admitted uh, himself defeated by St. Anthony. And this is how, what he said. He said, uh, there is only one thing in you, Anthony, that, that uh, defeats me. He says, it's not your fasting. I never eat at all. It's not your praying through the night and keeping long vigils. I never sleep at all. But by your humility, I am overcome. Because the evil ones have no humility. The reason why they reject God is because of, because of their own pride. So. The invitation to keep the Lenten rule always has to be uh, as, as an expression of humility. If we do it in self-righteousness, our fast will be worthless. So that's the one extreme to be avoided, the, uh, the taking pride in the, in the correct and full observance of the rule. On the other hand, the other extreme to be avoided is to be lax. And, and to say that, that I am unwilling to do anything that is, that is difficult uh, for me. Uh, Fasting, as experienced in the church, has always been difficult and demanding. It is, in many ways, no, no more difficult than it always has been in the, in the past. We are called to do it, first of all, as you know, in imitation of Christ and the apostles and the saints who have always practiced it, because it is a tool for breaking in us our, our dependency on, on pleasure and self-satisfaction and self-gratification. The Lenten fast is, of course, the most intense of the church's fasts. The rule is the strictest. Uh, the, uh, I know that, that, some, that some of you who, who uh, observed the fast before Nativity and you thought that, that was, you'd never done anything like that in your life before, well, that is an easy fast. 
that's a light fast compared to the, the, the Lenten discipline in which uh, we are called on, on the weekdays of Lent to, to limit ourselves as best we are able to one meal a day, uh, especially on Wednesday and Friday. Uh, when we, when we uh, abstain completely from food, fast completely till after communion. The food that is eaten during Lent is supposed to be very, very simple, very, very plain, ordinary. We, we are called on, on the weekdays of Lent to abstain from all meat, all dairy products, all fish, all alcohol, all oil. So it's, it's reduced to, to a, a simple diet of, of bread and grain and vegetable and fruit, very plainly prepared. Uh, very good for us, but uh, not, not like, especially for us affluent uh, Americans, uh, not like the food we usually eat. And then on, on the weekends of Lent, you know, the, the uh, tradition tells us that Saturday and Sunday, even during a, a fasting season, is meant to be a little bit of an oasis in the desert where we can be nourished a little bit more. So on, on Saturdays and Sundays during Lent, we're allowed the usual number of meals, and, and uh, wine is allowed, and, and foods that are cooked in oil is allowed. But uh, fish, uh, in, the, in the full observance of the rule, is only permitted on two days during, during the Lenten season. Uh, one is the Feast of the Annunciation. It's a feast day that we celebrate during Lent on March 25th, nine months before Christmas, when the Lord becomes incarnate in the womb of Mary. So the rule is lightened on that day. And then on Palm Sunday also, because it is the anticipation of Pascha with, with the Lord being entering into Jerusalem and being greeted as king, and we celebrate that in a festal manner. But otherwise, the purpose of the, the, the Lenten diet is to be very, very simple and, and, and a small amount. Only, we're only to eat as much as we need to, to keep ourselves going. And we are to experience, uh, we are to ex experience a certain amount of weakness and, and fatigue. Uh, we are not, on, we, have to, we have to be prudent and not make any decisions without seeking the advice of our spiritual fathers. But, but, and we're certainly not to make ourselves ill. But we are nevertheless to, to engage in a real effort of simplifying our diet. And that simplification of the diet is, stands for the whole simplification of life that is supposed to occur during Lent. I, I believe uh, very strongly that, especially in our times and in our society, unless the church going and unless the fasting is accompanied by an increase of silence in our very noisy time, it will not be able to bear much fruit. So that means uh, also fasting from, from television, at least all, in all of its expressions of noisy entertainments, and uh, things that we do such as going out to dinners or parties, uh, plays, uh, loud music, Anything that diverts our attention from where it belongs, we're called to a radical simplification of life during this time. So, so that's why, especially in families, it's, it's necessary to, to discuss these things and have, have a common willingness, a common heart to enter into this effort before it comes. Then, in addition to, to the fast, we are called, as, as the Lord tells us in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that to increase our good works, 
Again, not self-righteously, thinking that they make us uh, better than others, but as an expression of self-giving, just as Christ gives his life for us. So we're called to, to show our desire to give our life for his sake by acts of charity to others, whether it's in the form of, of giving gifts of money to the poor. That's why the church always has a, has a program of collecting money for, for the hungry during Lent, but also to find ways where we personally can give of ourselves to those who have less to show kindness to those who are often neglected, to even sometimes they can be people very close to us, to go out of our way uh, to, to perhaps show that, that we want to be closer to people that, that, that tend to irritate and annoy us, that we want to be the means of, of forgiveness for them that we want, to, we want to treat them with the same compassion as Christ has treated us. We also, as, as a good work, need to increase our, even as we do all these other things, to set aside the time that is saved, for example, from, from not watching television or not engaging in worldly entertainments, to doing some sort of spiritual reading, finding uh, a, a good life of one of the saints to read, for example, uh, reading the scriptures more. So all of this, all of these things together, form, they form a whole package which, if we keep it faithfully, will, will bring us to the Paschal celebration with eyes that are able to see the Lord as he is. So that's our, that's our introduction to Lent uh, this evening, and I'll close. And next time we'll speak of, of the Holy Week and the Paschal observance itself. And we can have some questions now. Before we do that, I want to read one more verse. Because this also is, comes from the Lenten service books, uh, the Lenten Triodion. And this is sung in the church the week before Lent. In fact, it will be sung three weeks from tonight when you come to Vespers. We'll sing this. And it really characterizes the attitude that we should have and, and what, why we are doing this, where we are going. Let us receive with joy, O faithful, the divinely inspired announcement of the fast. It is to be received with joy. Like the Ninevites of old, the Ninevites were the people that lived in the city of Nineveh who repented when the prophet Jonah was sent to them and they fasted and their city was, was spared by God. Like the harlots and the tax collectors who heard John the Baptist preaching repentance through, through abstinence, let us prepare for the Master's communion performed in Zion. The Master's communion is his death and burial and resurrection that we are called to witness. Let us wash ourselves with tears before the washing of the feet, referring to Christ washing the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper. Let us prepare to behold the fulfillment of the old Pascha, the old Passover, and the revelation of the new. Let us pray that we may see the cross and resurrection of Christ our God. 
Do not deprive us of our expectation, O lover of mankind. So we're called to have a real hope, a real expectation, a real desire. And that is to see, not simply to think of as something in the past, but to see and to experience it accomplished within the church and within each one of us, the cross and resurrection of Christ and the entering into the day that has no evening. That is what the Orthodox believe and experience is given to us during this most holy season. So as you see, it's something to be embraced with joy and, and with seriousness. So we pray that that will be so for all of us. Have any questions? Uh, two questions. One on the uh, triodion. Are the tunes in there those that the church knows, or is that new music that's coming? And maybe to just coattail on that, uh -huh. the liturgy of the pre-sanctified gifts, how does that differ from the liturgy that we would celebrate on a Sunday? Okay. Most of, the, most of the church's hymnography, by that I mean the hymnography that changes from day to day, uh, that, that's special for the day, according to whatever day of the year it is and according to the, the, the movings of, of the church's cycles. Most of that hymnography is sung to that body of chant that's arranged in the eight tones. So in that way, in that sense, the hymnography that we sing from the Triodion is sung in the same way as all the rest of the church's hymnography. Now, for some things, uh, there are special melodies that, that uh, for example, we have, certain, we have certain hymns that they alone are sung to a special melody, that's, but still it's, it's within that body of, of, of the eight tones of the church's liturgical chant, but special melodies develop that, that try to particularly characterize some, some, of these, uh, some of these unique hymns, not only for Lent, but also for, for Pascha and for many of the feasts. Now, the liturgy of the pre-sanctified gifts, I would say, in addition to its most essential uh, unique features that, that it is, it is not a, a celebration of the divine liturgy with, with the Eucharistic offering, with the anaphora, because it is the receiving of communion that has already been offered at the, at the previous Sunday liturgy. So, of course, there's no anaphora prayer in it. it here's, I'll, I'll give you a, a brief description of, of the order of the pre-sanctified liturgy. It begins, first of all, with with Lenten Vespers. Lenten Vespers are not that much different from the Vespers that we have the rest of the year. There are some special features. Uh, there are more Psalms that are sung, especially that group of Psalms that are called the Songs of Ascent, 119 to 133 or 120 to 134, depending on the, the uh, numbering system that's used, uh, Hebrew or Septuagint. Those are the Psalms uh, and maybe those of you who have read, uh, who uh, prayed the Psalms and remember in the Bible, there, there is that group of 15 that says, A Song of Ascent. And they were the songs that in the Old Testament, uh, the people would sing as they were going up to Jerusalem for the feasts of the Passover and the other pilgrimage feasts, Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. So they become also our pilgrimage song going up to the, the Feast of the Lord's Passover. So it's what we do in our church here. They are, they are assigned at the, at the pre-sanctified liturgy, all 15 of them to be sung at each one. 
We, uh, we adapt, as do many churches. What we do is we sing the first half of them on Wednesday and the second half on Friday each week. But it's, of course, more, more of the Psalter than is usually sung. But then, the, then uh, the, the Lord I call the evening psalms with their hymnography is, uh, are sung in the, in the same way as they always are. There are special verses uh, from the Triodion that are sung on every Wednesday and Friday. There are new ones for each day, special ones. Then there are always Old Testament readings. Instead of readings from the New Testament, as we have at the normal divine liturgy, uh, there are readings from the Old Testament, generally from the books of Genesis and Exodus, Proverbs, and some of the prophets, Isaiah in particular. Then, following the readings from the Old Testament, there, there are special, special litanies with, with prayers for uh, Every condition that's going on in the, in, within the church, not only for as we usually do for for uh, the for the uh, the people in the church, for 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 peace from on high, for the for the bishop and the clergy, for all for all the ranks of the faithful, for the civil authorities, and so forth. But it becomes much more specific, and we pray for for those who are struggling against evil. We pray uniquely for the catechumens and those preparing to be baptized, even if even if a a parish doesn't have anybody. Still at the Liturgy of the Presanctified, we pray because we're praying for all those in the world who will be received into the church at Pascha. And we remember that for, for a long time in the church, that was the time when everyone was received into the church. Uh, the prayers are generally much more penitential in character, uh, asking, for, asking for forgiveness of sins and, and the, the strength to continue the struggle against evil. Then. In place of the usual great entrance, such as we have at the Divine Liturgy, uh, we have the, the carrying from the table of preparation around the church to the altar, uh, the presanctified gifts. And here the atmosphere is much different because at the normal Divine Liturgy, we're carrying the gifts of bread and wine to the altar to be offered. But at the pre-sanctified liturgy, we're bringing to the altar the body and blood of Christ that is already being offered and will be distributed. So the hymn that is sung is different. It's not the usual cherubic hymn. There is a special hymn that the text is, Now the powers of heaven invisibly serve with us. Lo, the king of glory enters. Lo, the mystical sacrifice already fulfilled is, is brought forth. And during that time, all the people, all the people bow down to the ground. They make, they make a prostration. The priest uh, carries, the, carries the Holy Eucharist, uh, showing it the greatest honor possible by covering his face with, with the veil. He wraps his head with the veil and carries the Holy Eucharist on top of his head with his head bowed down. So it's a very, it's a very different uh, uh, atmosphere, expression. Then. Then after the, after the holy gifts have been brought to the altar, there's the usual uh, prayers before communion uh, with also special prayers for, for, uh, at, at that liturgy for, for, uh, to make us ready to receive holy communion and then, and then the giving of holy communion. Another, uh, another feature that I should mention, uh, there is a special prayer that's said during Lent uh, at all the weekdays. 
Now another thing you'll notice during the Lenten services is all of the, all of the special Lenten features, such as the, the penitential melodies, the making of many prostrations, all of that goes on on the weekdays of Lent, from Monday to Friday. Saturday and Sunday, uh, the ordinary order of the services returns because they're days to have a somewhat easier, lighter services. So when you come to liturgy on Sunday during Lent, you won't find any of that. It's always during the week. But the, the Lenten prayer, it's called the prayer of uh, St. Ephraim, the Syrian, comes from one of the great fathers of the church, St. Ephraim. It's said many times through the Lenten services on the weekdays, and it's a short prayer, and this is how it's said. O Lord and Master of my life, do not give me the spirit of sloth or laziness, faint-heartedness, lust for power, or idle talk. And you could have a whole evening on each one of those things, speaking about it. But give rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to your servant. O Lord and King, grant me to see my own sins and not judge my brother, for you are blessed unto ages of ages. And when that prayer is said, prostrations are made during it all the time. You'll see it's a kind of uh, continual presence during the Lenten service. It comes over and over and over again. That's another special feature to be aware that's, that, uh, that will be coming. Okay. No. Why are the <coughs> Latin Orthodox um, Lent different times? Oh, yes. Now, those of you who who uh, have familiarity with uh, the non-Orthodox churches uh, know that uh, they are beginning uh, Lent this week, and they have Pascha uh, four uh, four weeks earlier. Now we. Uh, no, on one of the other evenings, someone asked this question, and I gave, a, I gave a long explanation for it. Maybe the best thing to do would be, I'll tell you about that, okay, uh, the next time we get together for one of our meetings. It's, it's two different calendars. We, fo we, follow, uh, we follow an older way of calculating the date, but I'll tell you specifically how that works. It's not really, in this case, uh, a theological or spiritual question. It's more to do with astronomy. But the reason why our our uh, Pascha is the 1st of May, four weeks later this year, as our calendar works differently. It's an older system. It's Jim? In the writings of the spiritual books of the church, there seems to be one common theme that all of these people um, talk about and emphasize. There are many common themes, but one of the themes, and you touched on it tonight and before, is in terms of fasting. But this connection between the physical eating of food and, this, and the effect that that has on one spiritually. Mm -hmm. um, and you talked a little bit about that tonight, but can you go in a little deeper yeah. to that? Yeah, most of what... Uh, the, the Holy Fathers and Mothers say about fasting, and we, we, we actually, so much of that is put into hymnographic form in, in, in the church's services, begins with uh, describing even, uh, even the first sin, as it is, as we have the account in the book of Genesis, as 
in effect, an act of breaking the fast that is prescribed by God. See, the first sin is, is the seizing of the forbidden fruit of the tree and, and, and taking it uh, at the advice of the serpent, taking it for uh, one's own self-satisfaction to become the independent God. That was the temptation given to Adam and Eve. So the, the observance of the fast, that is the voluntary uh, abstaining from food, simplification of the diet, observing both, both the total fast when it's prescribed and, and the ascetical fast, the, the abstaining from, from various foods, is seen to be an expression of the desire to return to paradise, to return to, to the state where we do not, where, where we, we do not become consumers apart from God, that our lives are not focused in our own gratification. And the reason why the, the eating is chosen is that it is the most basic drive that we have. Uh, I, that, there would be agreement for that from, from I think, everyone, believers and non-believers. The most basic of all the drives that we have is the drive to eat, uh, because it's necessary to, uh, uh, to, keep, uh, to keep us alive. But on the other hand, when we, and this is expressed so well when the Lord finishes his fast in the desert and, and, uh, and the devil tempts him, uh, saying, if you are the son of God, make the stones into bread. Jesus says, not by bread alone does man live, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The, the food it is so easy for us for, to make the food the sign of how our life is lived in general. Food is the most basic need we have. We eat far more of it than we need. We use it so much, uh, not simply as, as being a secondary thing for which what, what comes forth from the mouth of God is more important, but rather a way it becomes, it is the sign of our preoccupation with, with self-directed pleasure. So that's why Christ, that's why John the Baptist, that's why the apostles and all the saints use the fast as a way of, of striking at our, our preoccupation with ourselves at its root. By the voluntary, and it's, it's interesting that there have been studies made, uh, I can't say too much about them now, but that different things happen to people when people are deprived of food involuntarily. You know, when they're starving, and it's not because they are choosing to, as opposed to when people voluntarily deprive themselves of, of food. Uh, uh, even, even the body reacts a different way. And, and certainly the mind and the spirit react in a much different way. That when the fast is undertaken as out of desire to identify oneself in this world with Christ crucified, and, and it's, it is one of the most central ways to do that, of realizing that our life in this world has to be a share in the cross of Christ. And that even though 
the circumstances of life that, that come upon us day by day with, with our responsibilities, with, with the cares and, and the physical and mental and emotional crosses, the burdens of life that come upon us, that the, the patient endurance and bearing of these in faith is critical to our share in the cross of Christ. Yet, nevertheless, Christ went to his cross voluntarily. And it's been the continual experience of the church that we have to find ways, not only with what we're dealt with, but what we voluntarily embrace to share in, in the life of self-denial. And so this, this attack against our most basic drive is, has always been the way, and we've said this before, uh, not even not even only for Christian people, but even in, in people in virtually all societies, when they want to be uh, more focused on the reality that is beyond uh, the, the routine day by day of life in this world, the first thing they begin to do is fast because it breaks the tyranny of the routine over us. So a lot more could be said, but that's, that's just a, a few comments. Okay. Well, uh, next w next time then we'll talk about what this fast prepares us for. God is with us through his grace and love for mankind always now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.